Well, this evening we're going to look at John chapter 18 together. So if you have your Bible, uh, please keep that open. And John chapter 18, I believe, is a passage that will warm our hearts. This evening, I want us to slow down and to consider just a small glimpse into the life of Jesus. But I believe a glimpse that is one of the most powerful, one of the most helpful, and I trust one that will help us savour the gospel in a fresh way. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever doubt God's love? Or do you ever wonder whether he cares for you? Perhaps COVID-19 has rocked your faith and you don't know whether God loves you. Or perhaps you're here and the coronavirus actually has rocked your atheism. And you've come looking, searching, wondering, is there something more than this? Well, this evening, my prayer is that we will see from this passage, even in the midst of this pandemic, there is a life-giving gospel that is global and eternal. Now, in verse one of our reading in John 18, we saw that Jesus has just finished praying. And he takes his disciples to an intimate place, a special place. The other Gospels fill us in. This is Gethsemane. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Gethsemane should be a place close to our hearts. Gethsemane should be a place that is dear to the Christian. Because here is a place where we can grasp the love of God. As we come into Gethsemane this evening, I pray that the Lord, by his spirit, would reveal his love to us. That we would grasp it and that it would be shed abroad in our hearts. Paul in Ephesians prays, doesn't he? He prays that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. This is my prayer for us as we look at this passage. The great reformer Luther once said that he felt as if the Lord Jesus had died only yesterday. That is, it was still real, relevant, rich and revolutionary in his life. And this is how I pray we would feel. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in the passage is this. The world seems out of control. The world seems out of control. Did you see that in verses two and three? As we begin to look into the garden, we see a world that is completely out of control. Around them, it's Passover. So Jerusalem is jam-packed with people. People are everywhere. And so they come to the serenity, the quietness of a special private garden, a place to get away from it all. But the scene, even there, away from the crowd, spirals out of control as a crowd comes to him. And look into the crowd. Firstly, you see the disciple, his own disciple, who comes to betray him in verse 2. I wonder if you've ever been betrayed. Perhaps you've been betrayed in the workplace. Someone you thought who was helping you was actually just waiting to stab you in the back. Maybe you've been betrayed in the family. Perhaps by a parent, perhaps by a spouse. Being betrayed is a terrible thing. 
When it happens, there are feelings of confusion and shock and anxiety. Why? How? What for? We lose all bearing. And this, this betrayal is a horrendous betrayal. If you go over to Luke's gospel, Luke fills in the betrayal. He says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Betrayed by a kiss. But this is more than just one rogue friend. We also see in verse 3 that the authorities come to arrest him. The authorities, this detachment of troops, well, they are Jesus' own creation. Jesus, according to Colossians, created the world. He invented hands and created them. And so the hands that come to arrest him, he had made. The people he had created came. The Lord Jesus came into creation and creation came for him. But it's even worse than that, isn't it? It's not just these troops. Actually, his own people come to reject him. His own people. The Jewish authorities come to arrest him, to kill him any way they could, even if that meant joining up with the occupying forces of the Roman army. Their enemy's enemy was now their friend. And so they come for Jesus. The religious authorities who searched the scriptures, hoping that in them they would find life, are coming to kill the creator of life the giver of life, life himself. This has been clear from John chapter 1. We knew it was going to happen. Do you remember back in John chapter 1, it says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Those Roman troops did not know him. He came to his own. The Jews and his own did not receive him. The world is spinning out of control in this passage. And brothers and sisters, for those of us joining in this evening, isn't the world spinning out of control now? We are seeing things happen in this world that we have never seen before. We are experiencing things in this world now that we never thought we would experience. And we don't know, humanly speaking, where this will all end up. The world is seemingly spinning out of control. Perhaps you have lost your job. Perhaps the business you have spent years building is crumbling around you. Maybe you have a family member who is in that high risk category and you are just hoping the shielding works. Maybe you had big plans this year. Maybe this year was the year for you, your A-levels, your GCSEs, your university degree, and it has gone. And you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe at the moment you can feel a temperature and the back of your throat is tickling and you're wondering, is it me next? Is it? Our world is spinning out of control. I think many of us at the moment just want to say, please stop. I want to get off. I want to get off. But come back to the passage with me. 
I want you to see something. In this passage, the world was seemingly spinning out of control, as if there was no one in control, crowds everywhere, Jesus being betrayed by his closest, by his creation and by his people. But the second thing I want you to see is this. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. You see it there in verses four to nine. Although it seems like everything is spinning out of control, this is actually all a plan. This in John's gospel in the Garden of Gethsemane is meant to happen. In fact, when you read through the gospel of John from start to finish, one of the main points that comes out is this was meant to happen. Jesus wanted this to happen. Look back down with me, verses four to nine. You see, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He says in verse four, knowing all things that would come upon him. You see, this wasn't just that knowing all things that Jesus saw the soldiers coming. No, no, no. Jesus knew they were going to come. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. He'd been talking about this all the way through John's gospel. You see, in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He knew he was going to give his life. Or what about John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18? Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. The Lord Jesus came to lay down his life. He knew every detail. You can look back to John chapter 13. He also knew about Judas. He knew exactly what he was going to do. Does not bless you. The world wasn't spinning out of control. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. You see, Jesus chose the cross. Jesus chose the cross for me. And Jesus chose the cross for you. But when you look at the passage, not only did Jesus know this was going to happen, Jesus was in divine control of this happening. Look in verses five to six. You see, it wasn't that Jesus was swept along by some prophecy or inevitability. No, no, no. Jesus was making sure that this would happen. We know, don't we, that Jesus could have just walked through the troops. He could have walked through the army. He could have just left. He didn't have to tell them it was him. You've got to remember, this is 2000 years ago. There wasn't 24 hour media. There weren't cameras. People didn't know what Jesus looked like unless they had met him. They literally asked Jesus, do you know where Jesus is? He could have just walked off if he didn't want to be arrested. And Jesus had the power, according uh, to Matthew, to call down 12 legions of angels. That is 72,000 angels. People in the Bible get freaked out when they see one angel. Jesus could have called 72,000 angels. But what does he do? He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. I am he. And a second time, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And I want you to notice. Did you see what happened that first time he said, I am he? 
These hardened soldiers, they come, don't they, in the middle of the night. The text is quite clear. They come with their lanterns and their torches and their swords. There are loads of them. And Jesus, the carpenter, with his ragamuffin band of disciples. And they come into the dark. That's interesting, isn't it? They're in the dark. And they come in the dark to get the Lord Jesus. They come to arrest him. They have all the earthly powers. He, humanly speaking, seems to have no power. They ask where he is. And he says, I am he. And what does it say the troops did? They fell down on their knees. What is going on there? Could it be that they're so shocked that Jesus is there? Is they fall down? No. Troops don't get shocked by someone and fall down. No, no, no. When Jesus said, I am he, that I am is the same as I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am. It's amazing. All the way back to the Old Testament, when God reveals himself as the I am, there is a divine power, I believe, as Jesus says those words, I am. They fall. They sense. They know Jesus is in divine control. He could have had them fall down. He could have had his angels and he could have walked off. But what do we see when we read back? The good shepherd was laying down his life. He had the power to do it. He had the power to do it. The God who could say, I am. I am that I am. I don't need anything. I am self-existent. The one who could say I am could say I am he and I am to be arrested and I am to lay my life down willingly. Jesus, even with his divine power, chose the cross. He chose the cross for me and he chose the cross for you. You see, Jesus wanted this to happen. Jesus wanted to be arrested. Verses seven to nine are clear. Jesus wanted to save you. Jesus wanted to die for you. Jesus loves you. Let me tell you this. We need to note here that even when the world seems to be out of control, even in the midst of chaos, God is in control. God is in control. It is not popular these days to talk about the providence and the sovereignty of God. I think our Puritan forefathers were much clearer on this. Not many people today would write a book like The Mystery of Providence. But we need to understand that even in the chaos of the world, there is one who is in control. And the one who is in control is the one who loves us, is the one who laid down his life for us. There is nothing more scary than a God who is in control, but you don't know whether he loves you. And there's nothing more impotent than a God who loves you, but you don't know if he's in control. God is in control. And God loves us. We see that in the garden. The Lord Jesus wanted to die for his disciples. He wanted to die for us. The shepherd came to lay down his life. And so what did the disciples do? What did Peter do? Did you notice verse 10? 
Peter pulls out his sword. You know, when you read the passage, it's very clear that Jesus is protecting the disciples. He is making sure that he is arrested and that they can go free. It's a kind of microcosm of the gospel in the passage. He is showing, I want to be taken so that you can go free. And as that is happening, Peter just comes out with a sword. And what does he do? He lobs off an ear. He lobs off an ear. You see, Peter at this point didn't want Jesus to be arrested. Peter didn't want Jesus to die for him. In fact, he had been fighting this for a very long time. Peter was the man who would say, there must be another way. Over in Mark chapter 8, uh, you get the amazing kind of interaction between the Lord Jesus and Peter when it says this, uh, Mark 8 verse 31, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned round and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In fact, then in the transfiguration, the father says to Peter, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Listen to him. But Peter still wasn't listening. He wasn't willing for the shepherd to lay down his life. Why? Peter wanted to save himself. Peter wanted to save himself. And how does he do it? He pulls out a sword against an army and lobs off the ear of a poor servant. It's a weak and fable attempt at self-salvation. It would not achieve anything. Some of us this evening are not willing to believe that Jesus had to die for us. Some of us this evening are willing to accept that we cannot save ourselves. We want to be able to say, I did it. I did it. Let me be clear. We all desperately need a saviour. Not a single one of us can save ourselves. Any one of us who goes before a holy God on our own, in our own righteousness, will fall. Will fall. We need a saviour. There's a sense in which society is changing at the moment, isn't it? A month ago, even two weeks ago, most of us thought, I can handle it. I can handle it. I can control my world. Many of you, I'm sure, just thought I'm earning a good wage. I've got money in the bank. I'll be okay. We are self-made people. We are people who can rely on ourselves. And one of the things that this pandemic has done, one of the things that the coronavirus has done, is has shown us we are not in control. We cannot save ourselves. One of the reasons the coronavirus is so scary is that it does not respect borders and it does not respect wealth. It does not respect status. It respects nothing. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you have done, what your potential is. 
If it gets you, it gets you. And the facade of control has been stripped away. I wonder what should we learn when the facade of control is taken away? We should learn it's a facade. When we realise that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, we need to realise that there is one who can save us. And so when we come here, we need to be careful that we're not like Peter, that we don't try to just save ourselves. We must realise that the Lord Jesus must, he had to die for us. There was no other way. But I think there's something very interesting in the text as well. Not just that one of Jesus' disciples still doesn't get it and wants to save himself. I think this whole issue with the troops falling at their knees is fascinating. So Jesus says, I am, and they fall down. There seems to be this, this moment of recognition, this, this moment of understanding. And then what do they do? They get back up and they arrest him. They get back up and they arrest him. My greatest fear for those of you listening this evening who don't know the Lord Jesus yet, this is my greatest fear for you. There is a moment now where you have realised you're not in control and that you need something, someone greater. My great fear for you is that you'll be like the troops and you will think for now, but then you'll just go back to normal. You'll go back to normal. We need to make sure that in this moment, that if we hear his voice, we do not harden our hearts. He is speaking and he is speaking now. What is happening in a sense is like a megaphone. The question is, will we listen? You see, the world seems to be spinning out of control, but there is one who is in control, the Lord Jesus. So thirdly, this is what we need to grasp this evening. There is only one way for our salvation. There's only one way for our salvation. We see it there in verses 11 to 14, 11 to 14. You see, we need to understand this evening, and I say this as one who desperately, desperately doesn't want to lose a loved one. But we need to understand that there is something worse than the coronavirus. The coronavirus is not the ultimate enemy. It's not our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is our cosmic treason. Our ultimate problem is our sin against God. You see, why did God have to come into our world? Why did Jesus have to become one of us and then be betrayed by his friend and his creation and his people? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did he have to have those nails put to his hands? Why did he have to say, my God, my God, why do you forsake me? Why did he have to give up his spirit and lay down his life? Why? Because there's no other way. The only way we can be made right with God is by what God does for us. In that the Lord Jesus came into this world, the Father gave his only begotten Son. This is the only way of salvation. And you know, in this garden, there is mention of something which, which is such good news. Such good news. Do you see it there in verse 11? 
there is the mention of the cup, the cup. You see, if Gethsemane is a most sacred place, I think the cup is the heart of Gethsemane. The heart of Gethsemane is the cup. And so we need to understand the cup. Let me take a few moments to explain to you something about the cup. And next Sunday evening, God willing, we'll look even more closely at the cup uh, together. But let me just explain a little bit about the cup to you. The cup has rich biblical imagery and meaning. The first thing the cup is, is a cup of wrath, a cup of wrath. The Old Testament teaches us about the cup. For example, in Isaiah 51, it says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. The cup in the Old Testament is a cup of wrath, a cup of fury. It's a symbol of God's righteous anger against sin. You know, when Luke describes the Garden of Gethsemane and he describes the prayer of Jesus in the garden, he says that when Jesus prays about the cup, there is such anguish that he sweats drops of blood. Why did Jesus sweat drops of blood? What was so intense about the thought of the cup? He was staggering under the thought of the cup. You see, this cup of wrath was a cup of wrath that came from the Father. Turn with me, if you've got your Bible, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 and verses 36 to 44. Listen in to understand a little bit more about this. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 44. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father. If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, You still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sin. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Did you see? The cup is from the Father. It is a cup of wrath. And so Jesus prays three times, take this cup away from me. He is filled with sorrow at the thought of it. We need to understand that the Lord Jesus, in going to the cross, was not just some kind of superman who wasn't going to feel anything. No, Jesus knew that on the cross, he who knew no sin 
would become sin. The one who would enjoy the father forever would become the object of the father's wrath. He knew that the sins of all those who would trust in him would be laid on him. But Jesus with the father and the spirit in eternity, God before the creation of the world, decided that he would do this. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus die for us? I love the way Galatians 2.20 puts it. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The God who is in control of this world, even when it seems out of control, is a God who loves us and gives himself for us. Even though that giving is agony. You see, the end of our reading, verse 14 in John 18, gives it all away, doesn't it? Verse 14, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You see, this cup is the cup of wrath. It is the cup from the Father, but ultimately it is the cup of substitution. It is the cup of substitution. On the cross, there is a swapping of cups. Jesus on the cross was going to take our sin. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah puts it like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus chose the cross. He chose it for me. He chose it for you. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine at this time if there was a cup of coronavirus, a cup of COVID-19, and then a cup of a cure that they had found? If you had a choice of cup, which would you drink? Which would you drink? But if there was two of you and you had to choose, which would you drink? The Lord Jesus, in going to the cross, and we see it in the garden in choosing to be arrested, is choosing the cup of wrath. He is choosing our place. You see, there is a divine exchange, and this is amazing. Not only does Jesus take our cup and take the cup of our sin so that he takes upon him the wrath of the father. Jesus has a cup which he gives to us. He takes a cup and gives it to us. You see, when you look back at the Old Testament, there is a cup of wrath, but there's also a cup of blessing. In that most famous of Psalms, Psalm 23, we have these words towards the end. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. My cup runs over. There is a cup of blessing, of joy, of love, of forgiveness, of salvation. And Jesus offers it to you. Jesus doesn't just take your death. He gives you life. He doesn't just take your sin. He gives you righteousness. He doesn't just take the wrath. He gives you blessings and joy and delight in the Father. Here is the question. Have you swapped?
Have you given Jesus your sin and said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, I give you my sin and I receive from you the cup of blessing. Do you realise that on that cross, as Jesus was being arrested in the reading to be taken to a a trial through the night, to be put up on a cross the next morning, do you realise that Jesus on that cross was taking your cup of wrath so that he could give you the cup of his blessing, his righteousness, his life? Brothers, sisters, you really need to get this. You will have to drink one of the cups. There is no sitting on the fence. You cannot just decide not to vote, to spoil your ballot paper. You have a choice. You can keep your cup, the cup of wrath, your sin, and face God, and you will drink that cup. Or you can come to Jesus and say, here is my sin. I cannot deal with it myself. But Jesus, you have died for me. And I thank you and I trust in you. And I take your cup of salvation because you have died and you have arisen for me. And you have ascended to heaven for me. And at the moment you are preparing a place for me and praying for me. And I take that cup. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus on the cross drank his cup to the very dregs. So that all of the wrath of God was taken. All of your sin was taken. Why? So that you could have a cup that would never run dry. You would have a cup that doesn't get drunk to the dregs, but gets filled to overflowing. Eternal life. Even in the midst of the sorrow and confusion of life now, there is a cup that overflows. I pray that if you don't know him, you would know him now. You would come to him. You would swap those cups. You would put your trust in Christ. And for those of us who trust in Christ already, that we would say, Lord Jesus, my world seems out of control, but you are on the throne and you are good and you love me and I can trust you. Brothers, sisters, friends, let us enjoy that cup of salvation, that cup that is overflowing. Amen.